0: Today's episode of the podcast features a conversation between myself and Professor Sean Brady, who teaches courses in the philosophy department at CSU. He is a wealth of knowledge and a wonderful and passionate teacher. I took Sean's class, Social and Moral Problems, in which we explored contemporary issues through the lens of philosophy and moral theory. In this podcast, we discussed his interest in philosophy, how he approaches teaching classes about controversial issues, the importance of examining one's own beliefs, the value of philosophy, and more. I hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. All right, Sean. Um, So the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about was uh, sort of some background information about yourself. Like when did you become interested in studying
1: philosophy? Um, So I think I first became interested in it during my undergrad. Uh, I went to the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. And I started off as a psychology major Uh, because I took a psychology class in high school and out of all my high school classes that was the one that kind of interested me the most but as I continued taking more classes at uh, at UNF um, I just so I was in the honors program as well I don't know if I shared that with you already in a previous conversation but part of that program was selecting from a variety of classes and a couple of those ended up being philosophy classes so Long story short, I think I kind of lucked out and found myself in classes that I connected with, and particularly with the one professor who taught both of those classes. And then when it came to my junior year, and I was trying to decide, you know, where am I going to go with my life and what am I going to do? Psychology wasn't really working for me, you know, in terms of thinking about actual career paths. And so I asked myself, what do I enjoy doing? What do I, out of all the classes I've taken, which ones are my favorite? And those were my philosophy classes. So at that point, you know, I kind of solidified my interest, I suppose, and then just changed my major and started taking more philosophy classes. Yeah,
0: yeah. and were, were there any like specific teachers or professors that you had that like really yeah. made it stand out
1: for you? Yeah, so that first honors uh, that first professor in the honors program, his name was Dr. Scott Farber. Um, and he's probably to this day, the most unique and influential professor I had. Um, you know, just, I think as cliche as it might sound, opened my eyes to some new ideas and possibilities and just different way of thinking and going about one's life. And, yeah. and you know, I think that... Probably the most impactful part of him as an instructor was his character, I would say. And the to put it in an in a ethical <laughs> frame work, I suppose, you know, the virtues that he kind of demonstrated in the classroom, a calmness, an open-mindedness, a willingness to like carefully and critically think about things that were said. Um, but ultimately like a a care for his students and for the process of learning. So I think those things in some ways stuck out to me and stuck with me now that i have at least hopefully become a professor. You know, I think I tried, I think in whatever field you end up going in, a lot of times you end up trying to not mimic, but recreate, you know, the, The mentors you had in your life the way you were taught you try to recreate so to a certain extent i think i try to do that in the classroom
0: yeah that was that was the theme in my last conversation i had with the professor we were talking about how she got into teaching and she was saying a similar thing like in undergrad she had a couple teachers that really like sort of inspired her and then we talked about how it's almost like this system of pay it forward like sure. you have a professor and then all of the people that become teachers want to yeah. pay it forward. And I mean, I definitely felt that in your class. I, I remember on the first day you like knew everybody's name from yeah. looking at their pictures. And that's just yeah. like the little things like that makes you feel like, okay, this person wants to be here. And then yeah. you sort of feel like you owe it to them
1: to listen to what they have to say. Yeah, I like that idea. I like that idea of pay it forward applied to teaching Because in a in a in a way or to an extent, you know, I do think that that's what I'm trying to achieve, Um, especially in my classes or in philosophy classes, where, you know, I'm honestly most of the students in my classes are not philosophy majors. Most of those students are not even going to take another philosophy class. Like this is going to be the only one, and so really, what I'm hoping. They take away from it is not memorization of these arguments or anything like that, but just the recognition of the kind of the value and importance of this kind of thinking. And that's what I feel like Dr. Farber did for me. Yeah. And so, you know, whether I'm aware of it all the time or not, I do think that that's what ends up coming through in my teaching is that desire to like pay that forward Yeah. at that recognition of the importance of critical thinking
0: yeah and it's interesting too like when I think of your class and like other I've only taken one other philosophy class was was like a logic class but Mm -hmm. in both ways those like the subjects that we are learning in both of those classes really felt like they are immediately applicable to your life like as soon as you learn it the material like it's there, it's not like in maybe a biology course, like you learn something, but you yeah. might never really apply it. Yeah. Like, But in terms of learning about like ethics and um, different moral theory, like
1: that's something you can apply literally that instant. Right, yeah. I mean, you almost inevitably find yourself in an ethical situation, probably within the first like 30 minutes of leaving the class, Yeah. it may not be as serious of an ethical issue as some of the controversial ones we talked about in class. But nonetheless, you know, I think what you're saying is right, that yeah, yeah. that and makes just, my job all the easier is because it's so directly applicable. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So one of the big things I wanted to talk to you about, this is a good like segue, um, yeah. was the class I took with you called Social and Moral Problems uh-huh. was definitely one of the highlights of my college experience, just because it was a class unlike anything I've ever taken before. And still okay. other classes have not come close to okay. this sort of environment that you created in that class. Uh, I'm not just trying to like boost you up. It's seriously, everyone yeah, who's taken that it. class really says the same thing. But I just wanted to hear your input. If you would describe the class um, for everyone who's listening and then just talk about sort of your approach to teaching it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, just for kind of the laypersons, for someone who didn't know, you know, I would just say that moral and social problems is basically an ethics class, you know, where we think about what's morally right and wrong, good and bad, as applied to uh, contemporary moral issues in our society. right? So the slightly more specific way to talk about it is to say that it's an applied ethics class because we are initially starting with these kind of moral theories, but then ultimately the goal is to directly apply them to the issues of, What were the ones we covered? Gun control, hate speech, abortion, animal treatment, world poverty and hunger, et cetera. And ask ourselves, you know, what's the morally right thing to do or for us to do or for us to do as a society in regards to each of these moral problems? Um, So, I mean, that's the subject matter. Yeah. And then I think your other, other part of the question was like how I approach the class.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Anything? I guess I'll, I can elaborate on that question. Yeah, yeah. Um, So sort of you touched on like some of the issues, the contemporary issues you're talking about are obviously like really controversial and like mm-hmm. in the public eye, but in your class you found a way to almost act as like this moderator because students would pick a side and debate. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had this way of knowing both sides all ends of the argument, be it the um, one side, the middle or the other side, which sort of made it like you could level the playing field and help everybody see the strength of all the sides. So I just kind of wanted to hear like what your approach is. Is that what you're thinking about when you're- Yeah,
1: (laughs) I mean, you kind of captured it. I mean, you know, so I can say a couple of things on this. I definitely can say that, you know, one of my goals is to go into that classroom and make sure, or at least do my best, that no student leaves that class thinking or feeling that I was trying to push them or force them towards one view or argument only. The way I avoid that is by pushing them towards one argument and then the next class, as you know, pushing them towards the opposite argument. And in that sense, As you're saying, like you're saying, as a as a moderator, you know, again, I kind of like that. I'm trying to maybe even a facilitator, like I'm trying to facilitate everyone's thinking about each of these arguments. And so, to a certain extent, I am trying to put forth the strongest version of that argument that I know of, that I possibly can. and then together as a class, we discuss the strengths and weaknesses of each argument. Yeah. And so by avoiding pushing students towards one argument, but rather pushing you towards several and then, and, and then critically thinking about them together, I hope to be kind of modeling and also facilitating or encouraging y'all. To think more on your feet and actively and critically about each argument rather than just accepting the one I'm telling you is true as yeah. true. Yeah. And I think a good way to, to kind of conceptualize that approach is by thinking in terms of neutrality versus advocacy. This is a like with uh, within the philosophical pedagogy. Yeah. Um this is a debate, you know. Should you approach your classes in a uh, in a more neutral fashion, like I do, or should you approach them in a more as a more of an advocate, where you are advocating for a particular view, and then still uh, inviting and encouraging critical thought about that? Yeah. So, so notice, like even with the latter, with the more advocate-based view. It's not that the philosophy teacher is just pushing their view on the students and they're just um, meant or assumed to accept it, yeah. but rather like there's a, for instance, I know of a professor in the department who chooses to teach this way and she will go into the classroom and say, this is what I believe is right. Here are my reasons. What do y'all think? And so notice like that's a a bit more forceful than I think I'll, than my approach. But she still invites that critical thinking and dissent. And in that sense, it still ends up being philosophical. Yeah. Now an important difference is she works with 300 level students. Like she teaches three and 400 level students. Whereas I tend to teach the 100 level classes. Moral and social problems is philosophy 103. Yeah. So maybe I'm mistaken in this belief or approach, but my belief is that if I were to take that advocate type approach with 100 level students, a lot of the students, not all of them, like I think you would have been able to handle that and like Cole, remember Cole? Yeah, yeah I do remember Cole. Uh, the, Like, you know, there's the, the, the higher level students are able to like realize what's going on and still engage in the philosophical practice. Yeah. But I think a lot of students would just feel like I'm just trying to brainwash them or you know propaganda them. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, or at least that being one of the reasons, I choose this more neutral approach where I'm not just advocating for one view, but I'm that at really advocating for all of them. And then together we are trying to grapple
0: Yeah. With that. Yeah. So I would say like, as in my experience, I remember this really clearly, like I would. So at the beginning, I remember we'd go through um, like the most common moral theories, I guess, the most basic ones that you would explain to us. And then after that period of maybe it was what, three to four weeks of doing that, then we dive into the contemporary issues. I remember, I don't remember what the first issue was, but I he remember Peter
1: Singer and world yeah, Poverty. yeah it
0: was world poverty and hunger and you explained his point of view in the first class period and I was like sold I was like All right, whatever <laughs> he just explained that's what I think I believe like that is such a strong argument and then the next day I think we had it Tuesday Thursday so I came in on Thursday yeah. and you would explain the other side which is completely different and it would make me think that the whole other class was wrong and that this is what I believe now and that that happened with literally every issue and it just makes you realize how complicated these issues are that we're talking about like there's no way you could have a quality point of view without engaging in like a session like that where you really pick it apart and you try and explore it. And I like, I think you said at the beginning of that class was one of your goals was to help people own their own beliefs right. rather than just accept what they were passed down for maybe their family right. or where they're from. And that was a definite thing that happened to me and a lot of other students just because you really do uh give give students the opportunity to think for themselves about it you kind of hold their hand a little bit oh, um yeah. you know like which is good like because like you're saying we don't really have any experience in this sort of uh in, in philosophy but um yeah once you kind of let us loose to think about it and you would have like debates and um discussions that's when I really felt like okay I'm I'm trying to figure this out right now yeah so
1: yeah, yeah, because I, th- right, I think it's inevitable when you leave that second class and you feel convinced all over again yeah. about the exact opposite thing that you felt convinced about two days ago, that's when that, um, how do you want to say, intellectual like crisis, not a crisis, yeah. but like the yeah. intellectual conflict really becomes apparent, I think, because you know while many of the students don't have a background in philosophy, I think everyone in that class is, you know, when you, they leave that second class is kind of able to realize like, oh shit, I, I think I believe two contradictory things and that yeah. can't be. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and most people aren't okay with that feeling, like feeling like you have contradictory beliefs. And so it, it's either somewhat natural or just like something that I think students just want is to continue to th- think about this and try to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you said made me think, you know, like you said something like if you want to have any hope of, I forget exactly how you just put it. Like if you want to have any hope of really thinking or really feeling strong about your beliefs, you have to consider the opposite side. Right. Yeah.
0: And like in depth, in depth, right. I think is important.
1: Good, good, good. Right. You have to you have to be willing or able to or you have to have considered it in depth. Right. And perhaps part of considering it in depth is also considering the alternatives and why you think they're mistaken. Right. And that's that's true always. (laughs) Yeah. But especially when it comes to controversial or complicated issues, you know, like, because it's a simple matter. yeah, You should know why you believe something and why you think the alternatives are incorrect. But it's simple, so it's, you know, I don't know, it's easier to do that, I guess. Yeah. Or, or maybe you have a lot more confidence that your initial beliefs are correct. But if you're dealing with a subject that you know is complicated, that you know is controversial, How can you feel confident in your beliefs unless you've kind of engaged in this process of critical examination, which in my mind, inevitably invites those dissenting opinions and arguments and, you know, kind of creates a dialogue between the two.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I just want to touch on that you just said is when people are, so all of the contemporary issues, for the most part, I feel like people have some sort of background knowledge, some sort of belief, and maybe it's not very strong, like their opinion on any of those issues, but there's a sort of confidence that you have in your own belief, or at least that I had in my beliefs coming into the class. And I don't honestly think I've ever been challenged, like to think about the other sides of those issues ever like at all um and so that you kind of are comfortable with that feeling of like I have this belief and that's it but what you're saying is once you feel that intellectual conflict of um thinking about the other side like really thinking about it you kind of become humbled that oh wait maybe I was wrong and once you get more comfortable with that feeling of discomfort of thinking you're wrong the easier it is after that course, like in everyday life to be like, oh, I was wrong about this. And it shouldn't be a feeling of embarrassment or like you should be allowed to change your stance when you hear someone else tell you a better position on it.
1: Yeah, and, and even more, if you were in fact wrong, realizing that's a good thing. Like you're saying, like realizing you're wrong is actually one step in the right direction because once you realize you're wrong, you're one step closer to being right or figuring out what the correct answer is. Um, Or even if you're not sure like what that correct answer is or will be, I think you're still taking a step forward. You're still making progress, so to speak, because you are, you're able to like wipe away one of the possible answers as in, oh, I, I now realize that can't be the case kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know what is the case, but at least I know it's not that one kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess to jump into the next thing I wanted to talk about, just because this is a good jumping off point, is the idea of um, just philosophy in general. This has also really stuck with me from your course. Um, I think it's mentioned in the paper by Bertrand Russell, The Value of Philosophy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where he talks about the value is in like the pursuit of the answer and not the answer itself, sort of like in a short way to say it. But that really stuck with me in the sense that we're trying to find answers to these questions that you can't answer like we don't have the tools to answer you said something also at the beginning of the course where um at one point like physics was philosophy but now we have more tools and more information to kind of get more absolute answers in that subject field but with philosophy it's like you're pursuing these questions that you you want to find the objective truth to but we will never be able to at least right now
1: sure Yeah. And I mean, you know, in our class, an ethics class, that seems perhaps even more true because, you know, for instance, one topic within philosophy is free will. Like, do humans have free will? But as, for instance, neuroscience continues to progress, um, there's a lot of people, philosophers and scientists who think that the question of free will is already beginning to be answered or will be answered with certainty one day. And like, all it's gonna take is advancements in the technology, for example, before we can demonstrate it uh, objectively one way or the other. Like maybe, maybe the brain scan will show that like, oh, something mysterious, really is going on inside the brain and that's yeah. what free will is there, right? But with ethics, if you want, you might recall this as well, ethics has to do with value. And like when we talk about morally right or wrong or good or bad, those are values. And science does not study value. It studies the world. It studies material objects basically. Yeah, yeah. And so for ethics there, it really does seem that Russell's ideas about how philosophy is characterized by uncertainty are probably gonna hold true for a long, long time, if not forever. Yeah just because it does not seem like value in general is something that's able to be proven scientifically. It's more based on one's thinking and um, establishing certain rational principles like we were trying to do with the moral theories at the beginning of class. Um, Where am I trying to go with this? So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, ethics is a good example of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And so notice what we're saying here is, or, you know, what Russell is saying is we all have moral beliefs, but we may never be able to prove scientifically, for example, yeah, that our beliefs are correct. And so someone may say, well, then what's the point of taking your ethics class, Sean, if I'm not going to be able to prove what's correct or incorrect, then what's the point? And Russell would say, or maybe, and maybe you would say that the point is that in the process of carefully thinking about moral values, yeah, you achieve things, even though you don't achieve the objectively correct knowledge of the objectively yeah. correct answer. So they might be like, "Well, what do you achieve? Well, you achieve things like understanding the other side of the debate." Yeah. So what does that mean? So now you understand other people a little bit better. Is that important? I think that's important. I have to live with these freaking people. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. cursed and I was like, "Oh, I'm on your podcast. I shouldn't say <laughs> heaven." You know, I like I, we have yeah. we live in a society where we're amongst people all the time. If I can better understand people, if I can better get along with people because I better understand them, even if I don't agree with them, that's a that's a benefit. That's a positive outcome of the process even though it didn't give me certain knowledge of what's moral yeah and that of course that's not the only benefit like you were saying earlier development of your own beliefs right develop self-understanding is a nice little way to, to phrase it yeah I think is a benefit you may not be able to prove that your beliefs are correct but through this consideration of other people's beliefs and then critically thinking about your own and theirs you oftentimes, further develop your beliefs, whether that is deepening them or changing your beliefs to something you hadn't thought of before, but now you, th- you think is supported by the best evidence. So understanding others better, understanding yourself better, becoming a little bit more open-minded while simultaneously becoming a better critical thinker yeah. that you can apply to other uh, problems in your day-to-day life. These are all important benefits and outcomes, I would say, that come from the process of philosophy that have nothing to do with finding the right answer. Yeah. And so, yeah.
0: One that I would add, I guess, which is sort of encapsulates all the other things that you just said. We also talked about how like, it's important that if we're sentient beings, that we engage in this because other... Um, species and other beings can't engage in this so we have like a higher pleasure in engaging in these things rather than just eating and drinking and whatever that other species do to survive we have this capacity to think rationally about things there you go and yeah there's a pleasure in that like there really is like a fun uh there's a good feeling about doing that
1: so yeah i was almost going to correct you initially because you said sentient And then it was like, oh, I think you mean more rational. Yeah. But then you said the higher pleasures, getting into the John Stuart Mill um, qualitative utilitarianism. And so that I think captures it better, right? So what you're saying is, because it's not just pleasure period, it's this what we might call more intellectual or higher form of pleasure. Uh, the fact that you and I can get a certain satisfaction of having this kind of intellectual discussion, whereas my dog Suki, it, this isn't a possibility for her. Even yeah. though she's sentient, she's not this kind of sentient. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a And so I think,
0: go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, it's like a spectrum.
1: Right, right, yeah. good. Um, and so, so part of what I think you're saying is, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, right. That's good. That's good. Zach. I, I never, get, I don't know if I quite ever connected those dots there, like with Russell, yeah. what Russell's saying, and then that higher version of pleasure, because to obtain that higher version of pleasure, you do not need the truth. That's yeah. not, that's not what the higher form of human pleasure is is necessarily about like that could be right that could be one example of a higher form of pleasure like discovering the objective truth about x yeah but of course that's not the only intellectual pleasure that we can get we can get all types of intellectual pleasures that don't have to do with being right (laughs) yeah 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 good
0: and they're better than a lot of the other pleasures I feel like that we experience as humans but that's subjective and other people have differing opinions on you know what they would enjoy but I definitely think if you are in like a critical thinking session like your classes would elicit uh yeah there's definitely pleasure going on there so um the next thing that I also wanted to talk to you about uh Is logic just really quickly? Um, We never really talked about logic much in your class, it's a whole nother uh, can of worms. But uh, I took a logic class uh, with Rod Adams. I don't know, yeah, good, good. He's, he's, yeah, he's, did I recommend
1: him to you or did you just get lucky? I think I just
0: got lucky. Yeah, he was, he's the best. He is the best, and something he said also has stuck with me to this day. I took that class a couple years ago, also which was this idea of how our elected officials engage in logic all the time, because they're, they're, they they're speak, they use rhetoric. So they're always talking about important mm-hmm. issues. Uh, and But for some reason, we don't hold them accountable to using uh, good reasoning, like with yeah. the tool of logic. So something he said was we should be teaching logic, this tool to understand um, people's arguments We should be teaching logic to people at young ages. It should be something that's like, you know, you learn your addition, subtraction, you should learn logic too. If we're in a society where you're always talking. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on like how, I mean, not just about elected officials, but just in life in general, how important that is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it can be helpful. You know, I think that oftentimes Like, you know, just to start from your example, when you're listening to a politician give a speech, a lot of times, or respond to a question, for instance, a lot of times if you just kind of listen to what they say on the, on the, in in a surface kind of way, it sounds good. Yeah. But then if you really start to lay out the argument, you know, reason by reason or premise by premise, it will sometimes become apparent that either they're uh, jump, you know, jumping to a conclusion, they're making certain assumptions, something they said is blatantly false. Yeah. And so, in a general sense, I think that logic can just help us think more carefully and critically, right? Um, and and I and I guess I just I think that. I uh, if you, I'm thinking my way through this. And yeah, yeah, I no do worries. think it's helpful. Like, I think that in a lot of, t- in a lot of cases, it can help you better understand what someone's saying and verify whether there's truth in their claims or not, or if their claims even make logical sense, or if they're yeah. fallacious. I also think that, you know, maybe there's a limit to how helpful it is, you know, just, to, to look at it from the other end of things, because you don't always have the opportunity to like, for instance, lay out the premises. Like if yeah. you're having an argument with someone, it's like, Oh, hold on, let me lay out the premises of your argument and see if what you're saying is actually, yeah. lo- you can't yeah. do that. Right. So in that sense, you know, maybe it's not directly applicable, but yeah. you'd hope that there's like a rub off effect. I suppose that the more. Practice one gets dealing with logic and thinking in logical terms, the easier it will become to kind of break down what someone is saying or claiming and, you know, determine if those reasons entail that conclusion and if those reasons are actually true. Yeah. Um,
0: I would also say, like, I think a lot of times when people are presenting things like, or when when you're learning about how how do you make decisions, uh, a lot of times it's presented to you either you're more logical and like rational or you sure. rely more on instinct and emotion. That's usually mm-hmm. like the dichotomy that's presented sure, sure. to you. Yeah. Um, do you think there's a place for both? Like in in even in something like philosophy, when you're thinking about like these complicated issues, is there a place for your instinct and emotion?
1: to think about those things also? Um, I, 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 I want to say yes. And I want to say yes, at least in the sense that if you don't care about something, it's hard to reason about it. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, it's like in terms of what's that?
0: I was going to say it's like a spark sort of that makes you want to engage in the reasoning. Yeah.
1: Like if you're not emotionally attached to something, if you genuinely don't care, that might actually cause you to be a worse reasoner. Like if you care about something and you want to better understand it, I think that that can propel you or motivate you to, to, Think hard and and critically. You know what I mean. Yeah. Like there probably needs to be a separation between caring about the topic and being emotionally invested in this in the topic. Yeah. And being emotionally invested in your pre existing belief kind of thing, right? It's like yeah. maybe I'm trying again. I'm thinking this through. It's like okay, I'm ex- I'm I uh, am emotionally invested in my pre existing belief. But if I really care about that belief, then I really care about getting it right and making sure that my belief is correct. And so that desire to want to be correct because I actually am emotionally invested in in X will hopefully lead me to attempt to suspend belief, think more impartially about all of the alternatives, including my initial belief, and subject all of those alternatives to to critical scrutiny and then ultimately make a decision based on what I think is backed by the strongest evidence. Yeah. So I I do think that they're connected. And like, I almost think that like someone, a philosopher who is completely emotionless, is just like a robot, you know? And maybe like, maybe, maybe we'd, (laughs) maybe we'd discover a lot more truths in philosophy if we were robots. Yeah. But part of me doesn't think so. Part of me thinks that the reason why we've made so much progress or why philosophy can be so impactful is because we care about things like free will and morality. And, you know, we care about getting them right. If we didn't care, we wouldn't think about them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it comes down to like the reasons we're thinking about these issues is because of the human experience. So you don't want to fully, fully count it out yeah it's just funny that it's presented as like a like i don't want to say it's a false dichotomy but a lot of times like if you're taking a personality quiz it'll be like are you more logical or do you rely on instinct and emotion it's like Mm -hmm. there's definitely a place for both but it sort of it's presented like you should try and
1: aim for one or the other yeah and 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 that's true in philosophy too or even uh in bertrand russell's essay right i mean The way he makes it sound sometimes, or the way that maybe I make it sound sometimes is like, you know, like when I say we should think impartially, we should suspend our beliefs and try to critically think about this from that impartial perspective, that makes it sound very cold and rational. And uh, how do you want to say third person point of view? Like we're just all observing, you know what I mean? From the outside. But in reality, that's not how any of us lives. We all live from the inside and we can't escape our experience and we can't escape our emotions. And so I think that the the real truth, like you're saying, has to be and should be a healthy mixture of the two.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's always moderation is everything, you know. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, the the something else that I wanted to talk to you about. That's
1: Aristotle, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: awesome. I see. I like. I don't know anything about like uh like old older. Yeah, yeah, ph- yeah. Philosophers and things like. We that.
1: didn't uh, we didn't cover virtue ethics in our yeah. class as a moral theory, but Aristotle's probably considered the the most you know most uh, renowned virtue ethicist or one of the first. Yeah. And that was kind of where his theory. Or what his theory was about—that like the morally right action is the mo- is the action that's between the two extremes. So like for instance, courage is in between um, being what's the opposite of courage? Afraid, cowardice. fearful, yeah. cowardice. Thank you. And being foolhardy, like being so confident that you're just acting like an idiot. Yeah. So having courage is the moderate point, and you should yeah. always aim for that moderate point and. If you're off the balance at all, you're more, you're leaning more towards the morally wrong action. That was his theory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect, honestly, thing into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which was if there were areas within philosophy or any issues that you're personally interested in more, like there's so many things under this umbrella term of philosophy. I almost don't like to use the term philosophy just because it like makes everything so much more general than there's, there really are all of these different alleyways you could go into. So are there anything in specific that you
1: find yourself like really interested in? Um. I mean, so the, like, these days, I'm most interested in thinking about how to be a better philosophy teacher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, like traditionally, I don't think that would be considered a topic of philosophy. It'd probably be considered more a topic of like education or some, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. But I do kind of think it's a topic of philosophy in the sense that I like to think about how teaching philosophy might differ from teaching other disciplines. And I I like to think about, for instance, you know, because philosophy is a different kind of discipline, for instance, than biology, I think that requires me to approach the classroom differently. And so I have to ask myself questions like, what does it mean to be a good philosophy teacher? Like we maybe could have a conversation about what it means to be a good teacher. And we'd probably be in agreement about a lot of things, but what does it mean to be a good philosophy teacher? For instance, me uh, and that other professor in the department who teaches more in the advocate-based way as opposed to the neutrality-based way, her and I could have a philosophical discussion about teaching philosophy. Yeah. So, you know, whereas in our ethics class, we were asking, what does it mean to be a good person? I like thinking about what does it mean to be a good philosophy teacher? Yeah. So that's one. But I think a more traditional area of philosophy that I've always enjoyed is the philosophy of art, which is traditionally called aesthetics. Yeah. Um, And so there, you know, you're basically asking questions like, what is art? what makes art good art as opposed to bad art? Is there such a thing as objectively good art or is it all a matter of opinion? Is beauty just in the eye of the beholder? Yeah. Uh, Questions like that always have fascinated
0: me. Yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up just because in one of my other classes I'm taking right now, we're talking about culture um, Uh and how, well, the author of this book that we're reading kind of explains this idea of high culture, uh, Mm -hmm. which is, I guess the way they describe it as like this formal idea of art. Like, so it'd be Beethoven symphonies. It would be uh, classical music, ballet, things like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas lower culture would not Mm -hmm. be considered that. It would more be like hip hop and rap or sitcoms on TV. so that is like directly related to this idea of like who decides what is high art versus low art or high culture versus low yeah yeah that's
1: a classic question kind of within the philosophy of art uh you know and do do all good artworks have something in common you know like what is it that makes them good as opposed to not as good right or like if a if a piece of art tends to bring a lot of people pleasure or, you know, like if a lot of people look at a particular artist and say, that's a great artist and then they look at another artist and say, well, that's a great artist too. What do these great artists have in common? What does it mean to be a great artist, if anything? um, Yeah, it seems difficult to parse out too because a lot of
0: times, pop culture is what is the art that is being most most appreciated at the time
1: sure uh, it's like a self it's like a vicious cycle
0: <laughs> exactly yeah and yeah. like just because it's popular then people want to say that it's not good art because of how popular it is sure but if you're going by the idea of art that makes the most people feel the most pleasure then yeah. it
1: it could be pop culture so yeah yeah but that but see this is interesting right i mean maybe the only reason why it's popular is because it's like let's just say very simple so maybe people are brought happiness just because it's like a very simple beat or a very simple rhythm of the song or maybe it's because a lot of pop songs have a very similar rhythm And so people is like, oh, that's familiar. That's the kind of music I like. But in reality, the more complex uh, song, which maybe took a lot more time to construct, maybe has a lot more instruments involved, maybe has a deeper meaning, less people are going to be into that perhaps. Yeah. But does that automatically make it less valuable just because less people enjoy it? It's an interesting question, right? I mean, yeah. where's value going to come from if not from people enjoying something? Yeah.
0: And but also, what if people
1: enjoy terrible things like, you know, um, I'm trying to think of something that's not too heavy um, uh, burning cats, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? If yeah. the majority of people like burning cats, does that make burning cats valuable? So yes. notice the parallel here also, Zach, between moral relativism and a kind of artistic relativism. You know, like a lot we say, oh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. People just like what they like in art. But and we also sometimes say the same thing about morality. Oh, well, it's all just relative. You think that's morally right, but I think it's morally wrong. But as you're aware, the, it's really hard to accept moral relativism because that, that requires that we accept things like burning cats is okay if someone thinks it is. Yeah. So if someone says, ah, oh, Britney Spears, she's the best. Does that automatically me- make her valuable and the best just because it's one person's opinion? there's a kind of parallel between the moral questions and the artistic questions, if you will.
0: Yeah, yeah. And something that I also was thinking about while you're explaining that is, is there, I mean, we think of art like as if, well, this can't be considered art because it's not x, y, and z. But is there a limit to what we could consider art? Like, can, yeah. could everything be art? But would that take away from the value of the Good. art that did require this immense amount of skill and practice
1: right yeah i mean if you tried to if you took all of the things that are considered art paintings songs sculptures uh, you know fill in the blank and you yeah. tried to ask yourself what do all these things have in common that would make them art you're gonna have a really hard time figuring out what A song has in common with a sculpture and a painting etc yeah so figuring out what is art and what's not or what makes something art is no easy task whatsoever um that's why it's part of philosophy (laughs) yeah
0: and it's also interesting like I don't know the definition of art, but I definitely have strong opinions on what I would consider art, even or, though good, I or bad art. Yeah. yeah good, or bad see? art, but I, I couldn't define art for you right now. Good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But but notice like first of all, you're not alone. That's like everybody. Everybody's in that same boat. But on a on a conceptual level, how can we make a claim that something is good art or bad art if we can't even define what art is, period? Yeah. And it's the same thing with morality. We all have beliefs about what's morally right and wrong. But if you were to ask someone, what's the definition of morality or morally right? They're probably gonna have some difficulty with that. And so I think there's oftentimes a disconnect between our kind of common sense, intuitive beliefs and the real substantive reasoning that should be there. And oftentimes is not. And that's what philosophy is good for. That's what philosophy's job is, is to help us recognize what our assumptions are in life and propel us to think more carefully and critically about them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, The last thing that I wanted to talk to you about uh, while we still have a few minutes is this is kind of a silly question because I know that it's out of the realm of possibility. But what I wanna ask you is if there is one like moral or any any sort of issue in philosophy like free will or are we living in a dream? If there was one thing that you want to have answered or at the closest you could do an answer by the end of your life, is there one that sticks out to you or is it just honestly Mm. you'll take what you
1: can get? If I, if I, so the question is, if if I could only have one truth to one of my uh, philosophical questions, which one would I want the truth to? I guess. I think I would go with. Hmm. I'd either go with. The moral truth like I want to know what the correct moral theory is because I, that's the most I think that would be the most practical for me yeah or my initial answer was going to be that I want the answer to the question of why there's something rather than nothing hmm. so that's a that's a bigger question I guess yeah. I would say it's yeah. like, I and and maybe another way to to phrase that is that I would want the answer to whether or not there's anything that exists outside of our universe. Maybe that's yeah. kind of goes hand in hand.
0: Yeah, I would have to agree with that that one yeah. that you're talking about. I think that's like a really interesting thing to think about and like that's also what is so cool to me about philosophy is like these things that you didn't realize people are studying academically like yeah. that you might just be thinking of like gazing yeah. up at the stars with your friends that you're thinking about people are actually getting degrees in yeah. thinking about <laughs> this you know which is like yeah. amazing because it it is important because a lot of people think oh that's not important to think about like sure. you know or some people think it's important to think about but not in a classroom but right. it definitely
1: right is. or or they think that like they think that when when they have those thoughts that they're being crazy that like they're they're like they're letting their mind wander to places that are pointless and you know like oh let me get back to reality and what actually matters but in reality i think that number 1 that is the natural philosopher in us coming out like we all wonder about things like that and exactly. and number 2 because we all wonder about it i think that goes to show that it's not crazy that in fact it's one of the burning questions of human life and what it means to be human as opposed to suki is that yeah. we have the capacity to wonder and ask about wonder about things like that and ask questions about that yeah yeah so when you wonder about that it's not demonstrating that you're crazy it's in fact demonstrating that you are this higher being who's capable of thinking about their place in the universe. Yeah. That I think is pretty I cool.
0: <laughs> great. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Like that, like if everyone is thinking about that, then you couldn't be crazy because it, or we're, or we're all crazy, crazy. crazy, but yeah. Yeah. Or we're all crazy. But I, I remember talking with my dad one time just about like what he thought was like going to happen after death, something like that. Yeah. One of those yeah. big unanswerable questions. Yeah. And I was just thinking to myself, like, almost from like an evolutionary standpoint, like why did that thought just pop into my head? And why is it so enjoyable or fun or interesting yeah. to think about it? Because you like do sort of, I feel like I'm going down like some rabbit hole when I think about that. Sure. And I could think about it for hours and hours. So yeah. why is that so enjoyable and also frustrating? And that, also <laughs> like, that is like sort of a somewhat universal thought to have or like a feeling to have when you're thinking about those things
1: Uh yeah and i i think it's interesting to ask it in an evolutionary sense you know i think i think that complicates it like but i you know i think it's also interesting you know what is the evolutionary benefit for humans to wonder about things like this um you know that's more of probably a scientific question honestly but it's still an interesting question yeah exactly And, and you know, maybe the benefit is like somehow it brings us closer together or something like, it, you know, creates a, a deeper sense of community amongst humans. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's just kind of a um, like a side effect. Right. Maybe we think about so maybe the evolutionary benefit is having this big ass brain. Yeah. It's really intelligent. And a side effect of that is like, damn it, we have to wonder about why there's something rather than nothing. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I guess uh, it's not the worst side effect then. (laughs) No. And I think
0: also it is, it drives innovation too. Right. I mean, now people are trying to go and colonize Mars, like, or colonize Mars. So like, it sort of does have a purpose
1: in like the current like instant moment. It does. Oh yeah. 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 And if not innovation, then just discovery in general, like to just like, to want to go to theoretically go back in time to discover, you know, what, how did the universe begin? Okay. Big bang. Well, what came before that? It would be something to discover what came before that. That wouldn't be nothing.
0: Yeah. And (laughs) part of me also wonders as I, in another class that I'm taking is we're sort of like thinking where does meaning come from like where mm. do who who is the author of meaning like who just yeah. determines what the meaning of art is or of a yeah, yeah so like it also makes me wonder like i mean i'm thinking about like the universe in this grand way as a way mm. to apply meaning to my life and to mm. like the significance of life itself sure but am i the author of that meaning is there right. really some other overarching right. thing that is pushing that meaning on me
1: yeah know? I mean, and in in a sense, that's kind of what I'm getting at with the question in the first place is like in my mind, where I started was when you asked the question, like, what do I, what would I like to know? My initial thought was, well, I guess I'd like to know if there's like any purpose to my life or if, if I'm just supposed to, or if there is no greater purpose and I just basically construct it for myself. But then from there, I kind of generalize to the more abstract question of like, well, I guess what I'm really asking is, why am I here? Why are any of us here? Why is there something rather than nothing? But I I think those all are kind of all of these thoughts and questions are interconnected, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm like, this is My my brain is like blown, (laughs)
1: and it's only eleven twenty in the morning. So yeah. Well, you're welcome. Uh, You know, I'm teaching a philosophy one hundred appreciation of philosophy. If you want the Zoom link, and you ever want to drop by, I'm happy to give it to you. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: I would honestly take you up on that. It's it's such a pleasure to like kind of reconnect. Like also just doing this podcast in general, I'm talking to a lot of professors that I've had, and it's a cool way to sort of culminate my experience Uh and like see what I remember or what I took away. And now yeah. it's sort of like a synthesis of like, I was wow, just going to say, yeah. Yeah. You like, they, you say something and then I'm like, I want to ask someone who's a
1: chemist about this right. next week, like something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And you're, I would guess that you're probably in a position now that you are able to synthesize that you are able to kind of zoom out and take a broader look at these various classes you've had and the things you've learned and then make the connections. Yeah. That's honestly probably the one of the values of this project in general yeah. and you know the specific project that you've chosen to do with the podcast. Yeah. That it gives you this opportunity to because when you're in the midst of it and you're like oh, I just need to know this for the test or you know you're we're having this in-depth conversation in class you're not thinking about chemistry or, you know, yeah. your, your other humanities class or whatever, but yeah. now you are, now you're in that, yeah. you have that opportunity. Yeah. So again, I think that's kind yeah. of one of the biggest values of this. Yeah. And I guess a way for
0: me to end is sort of, I think it's really cool that you are on this podcast talking about philosophy, yeah. because I feel like philosophy gets a bad rap. Uh, I think that's partly to blame because people like teach philosophy in like a high school course, and maybe it's just reading out of a textbook and the the teacher isn't as passionate about it or something like that. So I really do feel like it gets a bad rap. And then when people really sit down in a class like yours, it completely, like for me, at least it completely turned my view. So I hope that if anyone is listening
1: to this out there, that's like, I don't want to take a philosophy class, like go take a philosophy class. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. this is what philosophy is really about Uh, this kind of critical thinking and working together in an effort to make progress towards a better understanding of ourselves and the world in which we live, you know, Yeah, I don't think philosophy is just covering old ideas from people who died a long time ago. I don't, I don't think philosophy is just trying to advocate for one point of view. You know, I think that philosophy is very much about getting ourselves to be better thinkers and better thinkers is not about what you think. It's about how you think. Yeah. And that's ultimately what I I would say philosophy is about. So if you care about how to think and becoming a more careful, critical thinker, Then you should take (laughs) philosophy. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody.